Welcome back to Medic Minutes, the pre-hospital podcast series of the BC Emergency Health Services. I'm Gordon Meinecker, a primary care paramedic and medical student from Vancouver Island. As we discussed in our very first trailer episode, Dr. Floyd Besserer and I have been working to create a paramedic-focused podcast series with speakers across disciplines that are relevant to our field. Today I'll be co-hosting with a respiratory therapist and fellow medical student, Kayla Richardson, along with Dr. Garth Meckler, a pediatric emergency medicine expert from right here in BC. Hi, Gord. Thanks for having me. My name is Kayla Richardson. I'm a respiratory therapist and first-year medical student with the UBC Medical Program. And I'll be helping Gord co-host today's episode with Dr. Garth Meckler. Dr. Meckler is a pediatric emergency physician at BC Children's Hospital, and he is also an associate professor and division head of pediatric emergency medicine with BC Children's and UBC. He's also the pediatric advisor for the BC Emergency Health Services. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Meckler. My pleasure, thank you for having me. So today we're in Vancouver and we'll be discussing altered mental status in pediatric patients. We have a few outline points that we wanna cover today. Yes, today we'll be going over patient presentation and assessment, some common causes of altered mental status in pediatrics, and the pre-hospital management. The first thing we'll start with is, Dr. Meckler, can you explain to us what an altered mental status means in children? Sure. I think the BCEHS handbook actually does a great job. Altered mental status is just the failure of a child to respond to either verbal or physical stimuli in a manner that's appropriate to their development. Um, The caveat, of course, is having some sense of what a normal development is or what's normal for that child. And even as a pediatrician for 20 years, this is where I rely on parents to help me with that. So the baseline, the child's baseline is very important. We'll start with a scenario. So you're responding to a three-year-old child who is not fully alert, but is breathing normally. Details on CAD state that the babysitter found the child to not look fully responsive, and there are no further details. What sort of things should be going through our head at this stage? We know we're five, 10 minutes away. We might as well do some thinking before we get there. Are there some common differentials that we should be going through our head or assessment techniques? Honestly, so um, to me, I think that the differential diagnosis um, is helpful, but with altered level of consciousness, it includes everything that you could possibly be dispatched for. Um, And so thinking a little bit about the age of the child, preparing yourself to um, recognize normal versus abnormal vital signs, I think, and familiarize yourself with the appropriate Uh, equipment needed to potentially manage that patient um, from an airway perspective, from a trauma perspective, would be the most useful um, way to prepare for that call. Because honestly, the differential includes anything that can affect the brain. And whether that's brain-related, like seizures or toxins, or whether that's related to systemic disease, like overwhelming infection or sepsis, um, it really could be anything. So mostly I would take the age into consideration. Um, If you haven't seen a lot of kids, don't have kids of your own, uh, maybe a quick look through the handbook in terms of normal ranges of vital signs um, and what you might expect a normal three-year-old to do. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That BCHS handbook app does a really good job of outlining normal pediatric vital signs. I know anytime I'm going for a peds call, I'm writing down what I should expect my vital signs to be for that age range. There's other apps out there too that are really good. I think that's a really good suggestion. When we see a three-year-old child with an altered mental status, what does that or what can that look like? Yeah, so it can be almost anything. Um, uh, I think the most useful way to assess mental status is really the AVPU system um, that's mentioned in the handbook and in PALS, um, that is awake, verbal, pain, or unresponsive. So altered mental status is really any child who's not awake. Um, And so this can be somebody whose eyes are closed, who opens them and looks at you when you speak to them, but then drifts back off all the way down to no response to a finger poke for glucose or an IV start um, and is truly comatose. Um, And it can include delirium, so somebody who is awake but is responding to stimuli that aren't there or uh, not making sense. I think it's pretty normal for some of us to get on scene and feel a little unsettled. We're not used to seeing pediatric kids and our initial instinct is let's just start working towards hospital. But there are a few things that we need to slow down, assess in the home, make sure that we get a good history and assessment. Let's chat through some of those things really quickly. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I do recognize, uh, depending on your uh, level of training, where you're practicing, that the number of interventions that you can perform may be quite limited. But I'll tell you from a receiving perspective, it is that scene impression and what you get from being in the home, interacting with the caregivers, um, that is utterly invaluable. I ultimately think, even as an emergency doctor, the definitive diagnosis is less important than stabilizing somebody's vital signs, preventing further secondary injury to the brain. Um, may not be as satisfying not to know what it is, but. Um, but it is a clinical conundrum for sure. And it's that on-scene perspective that may actually be the clue to making the diagnosis, particularly when it comes to um, traumatic injuries that may not be reported, so child abuse in particular, um, or accidental ingestions. Your perceptions of caretaker behavior, um, the organization and safety of the home, you know, taking the time uh, to bring in pill bottles. Uh, those are the things that can really save a life uh, once you get to hospital. And Garth, what are some of the top causes that you see of altered mental status in Emerge? Sure. The causes range the entire spectrum, but I think there are some age-based things to keep in mind um, as you approach. And this is where um, just from from the CAD, you can get a sense of what, what differential, what things rise to the top of your differential. So uh, toddlers are notorious for both uh, injury-related um, causes of altered mental status and ingestions. Um, and uh, I think ingestions should be considered uh, in any age group, um, but certainly would be less common in a young infant who couldn't uh, put something in their mouth by themselves, um, although well-meaning toddler siblings are also <laughs> a possibility there. Um, the 
the overall, I think the most common causes are going to be trauma, infection, and ingestion. Um, and then seizure at all ages is another big one. And seizure is a really difficult one in kids um, because we can all recognize a grand mal seizure, um, which still does happen in the pediatric population. Uh, but infants in particular, and the younger you are as an infant, the more atypical those seizures can be. And I'll tell you that we struggle in emergency to recognize seizures in those kids. Um, and so I can only imagine uh, what it would be like in the home setting. Um, but I think in the young infant, um, keeping seizures in mind, um, and then uh, ingestions and trauma for all other kids. So I don't want to make it more complicated, but I'll share my dilemma with you in terms of pediatric seizures. So I think that um, seizures in kids, uh, for the most part, um, once you're in the preschool and school age, are going to be phenotypically, they're going to look much like adults. So they'll be primarily motor seizures. There can be absence seizures at, at a particular age. Even weird things like drop attacks can occur in kids. But those things, even if you don't recognize them or treat them, are not dangerous. The danger with seizures is status epilepticus. And the challenge, and that just means a seizure that hasn't stopped. And the challenge is in recognizing non-convulsive status epilepticus, um, which unfortunately is more common in some of the younger kids than in the adults. I think the evidence, medical evidence that we have that what pre-hospital personnel do for seizures makes a different, um, mat that it matters, is better than some of the best evidence we have in the hospital setting. For people in status epilepticus, the earlier um, EHS administers anticonvulsants, the more likely they are to resolve that episode. Um, and really, if somebody is seizing for more than 30 minutes, there are potential long-term effects. And so treating early um, makes a huge difference. Where it's easy is if you see them shaking. <laughs> and, um, and I think I would still check a glucose because they can be doing that for hypoglycemia. And then if you are um, uh, a CCP or an ACP, I would give a benzodiazepine. Where it's hard is if somebody has had a seizure and you're not sure whether their altered mental status is because they're postictal or they're continuing to seize. Um, and here I'll tell you that um, I share the same challenge that, that you do. Um, and I think what I would do is monitor their vital signs. If the heart rate is significantly out of the range of normal for that age and the patient is not responding, even though you're not seeing convulsive activity, I would consider giving a benzo. You can call clinical, um, but I would consider giving an empiric benzo. Um, and if the heart rate comes to normal and the patient wakes up, <laughs> uh, you've just made a diagnosis for us. Um, and really, the downsides of, of a dose of benzodiazepine are pretty small. You have to be prepared to bag potentially, um, but... Um, but that's a really tricky one, is distinguishing post from the non-convulsive status. 
And I just want to clarify something there. So with these non-convulsive seizures, do they commonly begin as a non-convulsive seizure or is it uncommon for convulsive seizures to then turn into non-convulsive seizures? That's a great question. So usually non-convulsive seizures um, start and stay that way. Um, so if somebody's had a grand mal seizure and then is um, difficult to arouse, I think you are more likely dealing with a postictal state as opposed to a parent who, of an infant who call you and say they're just not responding appropriately. Um, yeah. And, and again, the young infants can have some very atypical um, seizure activity, things that are described. And you can actually Google on YouTube and see good examples of it are things like eye blinking and lip smacking, um, bicycling activity that almost looks like they're intentionally um, moving their legs. Uh, but again, it's ultimately the parent will say they're just not responding normally. Mm -hmm. And if you see anything that's stereotyped, whether it's subtle facial movements um, or you get them on monitor and, and don't know why they're so tachycardic, um, that's when I would think about a seizure in a young infant. If we do have a witness seizure and the patient's in a postictal state, how long does that typically last? It's pretty variable depending how long they've seized for um, or how many seizures they've had. Um, you know, we think that they should start to wake up in 30 minutes. There are many kids that arrive in emergency and are still not back to baseline for an hour or two. Um, and most of us sort of bite our tongue and wait uh, because they will make a full recovery. But, um, but there's not a single parameter, unfortunately, that lets you know. So it wouldn't be completely abnormal to transport the patient to hospital in the entire time they're in the postictal state. Correct. And I'd say the you know this is one of the most common um, 911 calls for pediatric transports, um, and the majority of the time I'll get a report from EHS of a, a patient who is postictal and altered uh, GCS of 12, and it's only as you're pulling into the hospital that they start to become themselves. Uh, one other thing that we've touched on while we're talking about seizures, um, you mentioned febrile seizures. This is, um, it is worth um, thinking about again. So febrile seizures are unique to children and they are a uniquely benign diagnosis. That is, they're not associated with lifetime epilepsy. Um, and unless they go uninterrupted for more than 30 minutes, they're not associated with, with any kind of uh, brain injury. But a febrile seizure you'll see between six months of age and five or six years of age. And it is by definition in the setting of fever. And it really, you guys are the key for us um, when, when those kids are transported in because often the only documented fever will be in the pre-hospital setting uh, by EHS. Um, and so recognizing those, um, I think is really helpful. Um, as you're uh, able to give Tylenol and ibuprofen, um, treating the fever um, would be helpful as well. It can't, doesn't always prevent recurrent febrile seizures, um, but it helps us on the receiving end uh, if they've defervesced by the time they get to us. And I'm curious when you talk about the six month to five year mark, I guess so when we're thinking about seizures under the age of six months, 
is febrile seizures on that list or is it more likely to be a, another cause? Yeah, so we really, we restrict the definition of febrile seizure to six months. And the, the it's uh, six months to six years technically, um, but usually kids have outgrown them by the time they're four to six. Um, so under six months, seizures are rare and usually bad. Um, in infants. And when associated with fever, we think much more about CNS infection as opposed to the temperature lowering the seizure threshold, which um, we see in that, that window that, that we just talked about. So I worry much more about a seizing infant in the first half of the first year of life. I think much more about meningitis, encephalitis, overwhelming sepsis in that age group if they have a fever. Interesting. And I've heard, I don't know if this is true, that febrile seizures are more about how quickly their temperature rose as opposed to the absolute temperature. It's a fascinating question and it is still perpetuated on up to date and in textbooks. Um, I went back to look at the evidence for that assertion and it turns out that it is not true. Um, it's based on a single study <laughs> where some scientists discovered that Juvenile rats, so rat pups, they will seize if you raise their body temperature through putting them under heat lamps. And lo and behold, if you turn up those heat lamps faster and then you cook them faster, they will seize faster. And that's the only basis for that statement. Um, we do have data from hospitalized children who are hospitalized for other reasons um, where they're getting vital signs all the time. And we don't think there's a true correlation between rate of rise um, and having a febrile seizure. We know that an elevated body temperature lowers everyone's seizure threshold and that six months to six years is a uniquely susceptible window, um, but they are uh, one in 20 kids through worldwide will have them. So they're super common. So we have really good data um, on their long-term outcomes uh, and they do quite well. What are some of the common causes of infant seizures? Yeah, great question. So um, starting in the neonatal period, so from birth to you know, the first 28 days of life, um, the, when neonates have seizures, it's usually um, a bad cause. And I never trust a neonate, um, as you should never trust a neonate, because there's an infinite variety of things that can go wrong. That's the age in which all of your undiagnosed metabolic disease can present, and seizures and altered mental status are the two big causes of seizures in that age group, as well as birth-related trauma. So a lot of neonatal seizures are related to things that happen in utero, strokes, or birth asphyxia. Um, and then again, that whole metabolic um, uh, category. There are some endocrine causes that are unusual, but can present in that age group. Um, and then uh, neonates are uh, disproportionately susceptible to sepsis among all pediatric age ranges. Um, but despite the overwhelming sort of differential diagnosis, I think there are some really practical ways to approach it. Um, and they're all based on um, your physical exam and your vital signs. So I think if you remember to take a temperature, if you put them on a monitor or you get a set of, you know, just a respiratory rate, a heart rate, and if you can, a blood pressure, um, those, those things, and a pulse ox, <laughs> those things really can help you sort it out. So 
in overwhelming infection, for example, should present with either a fever or hypothermia. Um, those patients should be tachycardic um, with or without a low blood pressure. In the metabolic causes, there are thousands of potential abnormalities, but the only thing that we really care about or can deal with is hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. And so remembering to check a blood sugar, um, the way that we treat all of these rare and fantastic metabolic diseases is we stop feeding kids, we give them dextrose, um, and let somebody else sort it out down the line. Um, and so you can do that in the field as well. Dr. Meckler, we talked a little bit about hypoglycemia. Why don't we go over a sort of definition and more specifically, when should we treat hypoglycemia? Sounds like a very simple question, but... Um, I think a valid one, given that at the current state, primary care paramedics can't start IVs in children under the age of 12. So our options are either glucagon or wait potentially for the ALS crew who might be coming in the door behind us. So I, that's a very valid question, I think. Hopefully that'll change in the future and we can start IVs at a younger age. But We are working on that. That's coming very soon. <laughs> Stay tuned to Medic Minutes for an update <laughs> on pediatric IVs. No, it's a great question because... Neuroglycopenia, um, so if a low glucose is causing your altered mental status, that is one of the, that's a resuscitation emergency um, and can lead to permanent brain damage if not corrected. So thinking about it, checking every patient from birth to, to uh, the octogenarians is really important and intervening as soon as possible. I don't want to contradict the handbooks, and which I don't have in front of me, but I would say that a glucose less than four um, should be treated in anybody who has not got a normal mental status. If you have a, an appropriately behaving child who's 3.8, you're probably okay, but altered mental status and a glucose less than four, I would treat. Um, and I recognize that your options are limited. Glucagon um, can be effective. Um, and the main consideration for me is that it takes on average between 10 and 30 minutes to uh, make a real difference. And so depending on your response scenario, I think if you have ALS uh, back up on the way and they're going to be there within 10 or 15 minutes, uh, it may actually be worth waiting um, to get some dextrose, either IV or uh, an oral gel in that scenario. Um, you know, in the neonatal intensive care unit, we'll give oral um, uh, sugar gels uh, even in the minimally responsive. So patient. So you can still use the oral route if you happen to have gel available. Um, and anybody who does wake up to voice or, or touch and can drink, feel free to give them juice or even a soda non-diet uh, if that's all you have available to you. When we talk about glucagon and its mechanism of action, can you describe a little bit um, where it gets its glucose from and who should and shouldn't receive glucagon? Glucagon acts by um, mobilizing stores of glycogen um, from the patient. And as you know, children are more prone to hypoglycemia because they have fewer stores. Um, and so you're more likely to encounter hypoglycemia in the pediatric patient. Um, and it's possible that they will have a less robust response to glucagon. So there's a whole host of, again, those dreaded metabolic um, disorders that we can see in 
infants and neonates. And similarly, starvation states, whether that's related to vomiting and diarrhea, where glucagon might not be effective, which is why if I had a choice, providing them with glucose uh, would be my first option, but I recognize that you don't always have that choice. You won't cause harm with glucagon, um, but you may or may not get the response that you want. So let's just summarize quickly some of the stuff we've talked about in the last few minutes. So it sounds like some of the top common causes of alter that we should be considering and that you see on a daily basis are things like hypoglycemia, infection, drug ingestion, and trauma. And seizures. And seizures. Thank you. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about ingestions. Can you give us examples of substances that might cause an altered mental status in children that they tend to ingest what you see in the emergency department? Sure. Every pediatrician um, who talks about pediatric care usually talks about how kids are not just little adults. But I find myself increasingly appreciating that you take care of all of the ingestions that you could possibly see in kids all the time um, because the younger kids will ingest what's in the house. So these are the same parent medications that you're used to dealing with. Um, you know, the older kids will ingest the same uh, drugs of abuse as your older patients. Uh, and you really are well-trained and poised to recognize and manage um, uh, all of these ingestions. But the spectrum includes parents' blood pressure medication, so we still see beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, overdoses, um, parents' oral hypoglycemic agents, um, Increasingly, I just returned from a conference that reviewed all of the adverse effects of uh, marijuana in children, and there are increasing uh, reports of accidental ingestions, uh, particularly of edibles, by young children, and the number one presentation is altered mental status. And that can be the only finding, um, uh, so keeping that in mind uh, as well. Uh, in the older teenager, um, uh, when it is a deliberate ingestion, the things that we most commonly see are Tylenol and ibuprofen, um, which there's uh, not much that you can do about in the pre-hospital setting, but trying again to quantify if possible, um, even bringing in the pill bottle so that we can do a pill count um, can really make a difference. Yeah, I imagine there would be different, different ingestions for different ages. Yep. And you're all facing the opioid epidemic um, in the adult patients, and that is affecting kids as well. So again, accidental ingestion of opioids by children. Um, and, and this is where your experience with the adult population um, gives you an advantage. Uh, we don't think about that as much as pediatricians, uh, but you, you will all recognize those pinpoint pupils and slow respiratory rate of an opioid ingestion. Um, and that in kids is a perfect time to give Narcan just as you would with an adult. Um, you know, we, we think about poisoning as, um, as ingestions, um, but it can be environmental poisoning as well. And so that's the, the other piece, because in some settings, um, affected adult family members are directed to another hospital. And so we just get one. But knowing whether multiple people in a household are showing symptoms really changes our, our whole thought process and we start to think about environmental 
causes. And carbon monoxide, absolutely, um, altered mental status can be the one presentation. And man, is that a different treatment. I'm glad you brought up naloxone. I have a few questions. Yeah. When should naloxone be given? What sort of clinical scenario? Obviously, we know with respiratory depression, the pinpoint pupils, things will indicate an opiate overdose. But can we give it in other circumstances when the cause of the altered mental status is unknown? Yeah, so I think in pediatrics, um, you're actually much, it's much safer to give naloxone to children. Um, the, a lot of the things that we worry about in adults uh, are, are less common in children. So we just don't see chronically opioid-dependent children. Um, the one exception is that we are no longer recommending or giving naloxone to newborns. So in that neonatal period, if you have an infant of a drug-addicted um, mother um, who's been abusing opioids during pregnancy, that can cause problems. You can precipitate withdrawal and seizures in a neonate. But outside of the neonatal period, um, you probably won't run into any untoward side effects of giving naloxone. Um, I'll tell you that, uh, again, 20 years in this um, specific role, I call poison control almost every shift, even when I know what I'm dealing with. Um, I find them a very helpful group of experts um, who can help me to recognize a toxidrome if I don't recognize it, can remind me of the latest updates on treatment. Um, but also, importantly, they keep all of the statistics that give us information um, about what's happening, um, and, um, and I think that's important as well. Um, so if you're able um, to call directly, um, I find them the most helpful resource. Uh, that said, Clinic Hall is always happy to accept your calls, EPOS, and you can always call the emergency department that you're going to or call us at Children's and we'd be happy to troubleshoot with you too. We wanted to quickly talk about Altis. Garth, can you tell us what uh, an Alti is and what we need to know about it? Sure. So ALTI is terminology that has been recently replaced, but um, for generations um, has been part of the pediatric uh, um, experience. So ALTI stands for uh, Apparent Life-Threatening Event. Um, the new terminology is now BREW, so a Brief Resolved Unexplained Event. Um, and by definition, um, with this new terminology, it should be resolved by the time that you arrive. But um, it's essentially altered mental status uh, in a pediatric patient in the first year of life. Um, and so the components of the definition of a brew include some alteration in mental status, some alteration in respiratory pattern, and some alteration in color or tone. So these can be patients who have a period of apnea with pallor or cyanosis, with hypertonicity or low tone, um, and then come back to themselves. Um, and then it's our job, once they arrive at hospital, to see if we can find a dangerous underlying cause. But the truth is that the vast majority of kids with these presentations end up being just fine, going home, having no sequelae, and we rarely actually find a definitive cause. Um, I think 
apparent life-threatening event captures really well the parent's reaction to this because part of that definition was that it has to be frightening to the caregiver. That's why they called 911. That's why you're there. Um, and really, particularly in neonates, this is a vulnerable time of life um, because neonates are inherently physiologically vulnerable and parents um, are the most important thing to keeping them healthy and alive and they can get easily overwhelmed. Um, and so we, we take that age group very seriously. And even if it's just spending some TLC time reassuring families, that's a really important thing. So I would bring all of those kids in. Do you have any advice for how to approach a, a parent, a caregiver who is in distress over an ill child? Yeah, I, um, I think, you know, the fundamentals of, um, of reassuring anyone are the same. So I think making sure that they feel heard and asking them what what they saw. You know, if the event has resolved itself um, by the time you arrive, which is the case by the time they get to the ED, most of the most of the cases, I think you can help to reassure them by going over their normal findings in, in your hands. Just say, you know, he's breathing really well. Her heart rate is within the normal range. The oxygen level is looking great. We're gonna check a blood sugar and make sure that's okay. And I think giving them some objective data back is, is often helpful. Um, when I see a brew or the other complaint that comes to emergency frequently resolved is the inconsolable infant. Um, that's exactly what I do is I sit down and I just talk them through my head to toe exam. I say, you know, the head is, the soft spots feel nice and normal. They're not sunk and they're not bulging. And I just walk them through what I'm observing. And I think um, recognizing that you may not um, see and assess that many kids, um, just the vital signs and the things that you are assessing, reassuring them um, what you're finding is helpful. So Dr. Meckler, any final tips, tricks, advice for paramedics out there before our next pediatric call? Sure. I think uh, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you forget your mnemonics or you forget your differential, just falling back on what you do so well and do every day with all your patients and focusing on the A, B, C, D, E of your assessment will really give you all of the differential and all of the intervenable um, uh or actionable differential that you need. So you approach airway and breathing, notice whether they're protecting their airway, whether they're hypoxic, which can cause altered mental status, or have slow respirations and you suspect hypercapnia causing mental status. And your intervention is to provide oxygen or breathing as necessary and protect the airway as necessary. Then the cardiovascular assessment um, you can identify hypotension as a potential cause of altered mental status um, or potentially hypertension as a cause of altered mental status. The D for disability is essentially your quick neurologic exam, um, but that will um, identify toxidromes like we've talked about with opioids or signs of head injury um, or focal neurologic deficits. Uh, the E for exposure is always important to look primarily for occult signs of injury um, and then not forgetting to check the glucose. But so if you're, if you're not sure what to think about, just fall back on that instinctual um, and practiced uh, training of A, B, C, D, E, and you'll be good. Awesome. Those have been some really good insights, Garth. Yeah. I think, yeah, this has been a very valuable conversation for 
both myself, I think Kayla and all the paramedics out there in BC. So we really appreciate your expertise and your time today. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, well, to wrap that up, today's session, we discussed the clinical presentation and assessment of pediatric patients with altered mental status. We talked about key information to gather at the scene and on history. We talked about different causes of AMS and uh, management in the pre-hospital setting. So I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Garth Meckler. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And as always, we need your feedback. So there should be a survey coming up soon with a link in our podcast write-up and on our show notes, which will be going up shortly. And you can email us directly at podcast at bcehs.ca. So that concludes another episode of Medic Minutes. Thanks for listening.